Hello, thank you for joining us for our conversation today at Zocalo Public Scare. I'm Erica Aguilar and I'm a journalist here in the edit and editor at the Bay Area. I'm currently the director of podcasts at KQED where I've reported on housing. I've also spent some time reporting on homelessness in Orange County um, where I was reporting in Southern California a few years ago. Most recently, I helped establish the housing affordability desk at KQED and I'm working with our team of reporters to launch a podcast in the fall about housing. I'm speaking today with Jerry Nicholsberg who is an economist at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. He's the director of the UCLA Anderson Forecast, which is a quarterly projection for the economy in California and the United States. The latest forecast was published last week and focuses on residential real estate. And according to the forecast, the US economy is in a depression-like crisis and a recovery will take until at least 2023. So we're going to start there with our discussion. And Jerry, will you help me unpack that a little bit? What does that exactly mean, a depression-like crisis that will take at least until 2023? Sure. Thank you, Erica. Pleasure to be here with you. The characterization of this recession as being depression-like is because of the rapidity and the depth of the contraction. So in the, since the Great Depression, which began in 1929, but the contraction actually lasted for three years, uh, the recessions that we've experienced have been, compared to that, you know, relatively mild. Hmm. But in this one, in March and April of this year, we saw a dramatic decrease in economic activity uh, along the order of about 40%. Mm. at an annual rate. And that is something that we haven't seen since the depression. So that's what that means. Is it like the depression? Is it, is it a depression in the same sense as the Great Depression of the 30s? No, not at all. But the contraction was very steep and something we haven't seen certainly in our lifetimes. I see. Well, during the forecast and the discussion around the recovery, it was um, described as a, a sort of a Nike swoosh work that we would see recovery move in, in that sort of um, a, a way of a Nike swoosh mark. And I guess it's partly because of unemployment, which will take a while to recover in some sectors that were really hit hard, like retail, um, just to mention like a, a few reasons. And since, you know, remote work and work from home seems to be productive right now. There have been predictions that maybe for housing, when we talk about like real estate, that the suburbs and mid-sized cities is where people will be eyeing more affordable housing options. Um, can you talk a little bit more about where that pro projection sort of comes from and, and, and whether this is the actual, or this is the outlook for residential real estate in, in California? Sure. So let's start with that imagery of the Nike swoosh, yeah. which is a very steep decline that I just uh, talked about, but then kind of a slow recovery. But what is really different about this particular recovery is that some sectors of the economy, and where you are in San Francisco right now, uh, is heavy in one of them, technology, Mm -hmm. They are expected to grow more rapidly than the U.S. economy, and so both income and employment will be growing uh, fast in that, relatively fast in that sense. But this recession has hit 
leisure and hospitality and retail and personal services much harder than any other sector. Absolutely. Those happen to be low income sectors. And the expectation is that they will recover much more slowly. Mm-hmm. And that gives you that long, slow recovery. But I think what's important there is, you know, we've talked a lot about inequality. Mm-hmm. And inequality as it affects housing. And, uh, and inequality is likely going to get worse in the recovery because these low-income sectors are going to be slow to recover, weak job growth, weak, weak income growth. And the sectors that are high income are, are likely to grow faster. So yes. that you know definitely has an impact on housing. Uh, you and the affordability of it, or the the options that are available to to the people who work in those slow recovering sectors. It, 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 exactly, and and you asked about the work from home and how does that change the demand for housing. I mean, you know, one can expect in you know in some places that folks who are looking for a home are going to look for one that has an office where they can work remotely. Uh, but I think the jury is really still out as to how much work from home we're going to be doing. Right now, it seems to be working. But, you know, for example, our team at the Anderson Forecast, we've been together a while. We know each other. We know UCLA's culture, Anderson's culture, how we interact one with another. And it's worked really well. But introduce some new folks into it who don't have any of that cultural background and and don't really know how to work with us. Uh, you may be able to get it over platforms like this, but it's going to be really difficult. So uh, I think for at least a lot of activities, uh, work from home seems okay now, but those benefits are going to abate. And, and so it's the jury's out on the impact of that on housing. Follow up on that, and 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 um, just anecdotally, I feel like I'm hearing um, some coworkers or friends who um, are younger than I am, um, who are thinking, mm, maybe I don't need this apartment anymore, um, and I'm just going to move in with my family and the time being until I figure out what's going on with COVID, and then in the meantime, I'm saving some money. And, you know, maybe I'll have something more later either to buy or or just just save in general um that to me feels like a different um demographic for housing options you know than the demographic who's maybe looking for um a house to purchase you know for like you know the second office or anything like that does that have any any sway you know this this younger a sort of a younger uh demographic younger generation that has access to a house um maybe with their friends or their family sure um so let's let's think about that a bit so right now you know with the pandemic uh, going out to bars and events and concerts is not something we're doing. Not something that, I mean, some people are, but very few are. And, and, and you know, and most of the bars are closed. So some of the real attractive parts of being in Los Angeles or San Francisco or, or, or San Diego are, are not there. So why not move out to the suburbs, live with mom and dad, save some money, 
that seems like a good option. But if we kind of think uh, towards the future when uh, this pandemic is behind us, uh, you know, young people want to be together, want to socialize, want to try and meet a lot of people, maybe even encounter uh, a mate or a partner for the future. Really hard to do in, in uh, communities that are not very dense and communities that uh, are predominantly an older generation and where you don't have a lot of, of what we call cultural amenities like bars and restaurants and social events and, and concerts and the like. And so expect them to move back in. But I think what you're seeing in San Francisco yeah. right now uh, and in the city cores throughout California is that there's a real weakness in rental housing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the demand is, has, has abated for exactly the reason that you said, but that is a temporary phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Plus, it seems like all the stimulus um, that has been injected into some uh, into our economy seems to be working in being able to stave off some some rent payments for some people. It, it is, and also uh, a good portion of that stimulus is likely going into savings, in uh, you know, partially in the way that you were talking about economizing on housing by living right. with friends and sharing the rent and so on. Uh, because of the uncertainty of the future. So it makes good sense to increase your savings and have a better cushion if, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic comes back in 2021. Right, right. Well, we're seeing these waves. And so I would assume that another stimulus, and we keep hearing that another stimulus package is on its way or is predicted to be on its way. Um, and I wonder if that will also have an impact in the number of affordable housing op like options for, for people. Uh, first of all, we don't know that it's really going to be on its way. There's talk right. about it, right. but this is an election year, and it's not clear that much is going to get through Congress in an election year. Mm -hmm. That might be 2021, but there has been discussion in that regard. I, I think the real issue about housing in California is that it is not very affordable for a number of reasons. One that is frequently pointed out is the stock of housing uh, has not been increasing at a very rapid rate. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the second is California is a wonderful place to live. And so the demand for housing in California is not just from Californians, but it's from people in Ohio. It's from uh, people from San Antonio. Which <laughs> And, 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 and people from all around the world. And uh, the way in which that limited stock of housing is rationed is through the market, through higher prices. In April, and April was the second month of this recession, home prices in Los Angeles and San Diego went up. And home prices in the San Francisco Bay Area eased fractionally, but almost imperceptibly. So you didn't get this real pullback, and that's because the demand for housing in California is, is, is that great. This is a place mm -hmm. where people want to be. Uh, that means that housing affordability is a long-term problem. It's not, a, it's not something that short-term fixes will, will get us out of. Um, it, it reminds me, though, um you know, you and I were talking about 
the title of this conversation, which is like, will California ever be affordable? And we, we joked that we would have a three minute conversation and be done. Um, because no, <laughs> the answer ultimately is no. Can you expand on, on what you mean by that? Sure. California, prior to the recession, was building about 110, 115,000 new homes per year. And if you subtract out the rebuilding of homes that were destroyed in these uh, tragic wildfires, it's around 100,000 homes. Now, it's been estimated by a, a few people, including the Legislative Analyst's Office, that to bring the affordability of California down to, say, where it was in the 80s relative to the rest of the U.S. And it was more expensive in the 80s than the rest of the U.S., but to bring it down to that, that level, that premium, mm -hmm. we would need about 3.2 million more homes. And, and that's been put into some of the state housing plans as well. So if you think about 3.2 million homes versus 100,000 a year and the 100,000 doesn't even keep up with population growth. Right. We're a long ways away. So how do you get there? Can you just begin to produce 300,000 homes a year? Well, that means triple the labor force. Mm -hmm. That means about a million new construction workers. And prior to this recession, we only had 900,000 construction workers, some of whom were building office buildings or, uh, or building bridges and repairing California's roads. So where are you going to get that, the million people? They have to come in from outside. They'll come in with their families. They need to be housed. And uh, you need public safety and schools and grocery stores. So this is just not something where you can throw a switch and and increase the amount of housing quickly, even if you change some of the regulations that have limited the growth rate of housing. This yeah. is a 20 year or 30 year issue. Gosh, when you say that, oh, when you say like a 20 to 30 year issue, meaning like, just because when I think about housing and California and all, you know, the research that I've done in, in reporting and talking to experts like yourself, you know, people were talking about this in the seventies, you know, even before that, when they were like, well, you know, when I grew up, all I really wanted was a home because that was really hard to find anyway. Um, ultimately what I'm hearing you say is, we're, we won't achieve affordability through just through increased supply, simply because that might be impossible to do in a cinch. Um, but then that leads me to the idea that if that's the case, then we do have to do some type of perhaps subsidized housing. That may be our next conversation in, in trying to make housing affordable for California. I, I, you know, I, I think that's, that's right. And, and it should be targeted, right? Uh, when you look around the world at the most successful cities, the cities that people want to be in, you find that really only one of them qualifies as being affordable. All the rest of them are like San Francisco and Los Angeles and, and San Diego and, and uh, Santa Clara County, not affordable. I'm curious, uh, what's, what's the one? Singapore. Huh. And 85% of the housing in Singapore is public housing. We have lots of conversations at KQED with our housing reporters about 
perhaps, you know, we do a lot of what ifs right now. And I think that makes sense. We're in a pandemic that we're doing things like shelter in place where we thought couldn't be done. I feel like there are some things that are happening now during, um, you know, the, the two pandemics that we have right now, which is the health pandemic and the fight for racial justice, um, that, uh, you know, months ago, maybe just simply months ago, people were like, wow, that can't be done. Or like, this is just the way it is, Erica. But I feel like we're starting to have these conversations now that start with like, what if? And one of those questions is like, what if we built public housing the way it was before? Or at least in an improved state? And 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 what if the federal government, um, you know, had a bigger role as a housing builder? Yeah, so I, I think you're right. When we suffer through crises as we are now, it does open our minds to possibilities that we thought were not possibilities before and, and really leads us to say, maybe we should experiment, maybe we should try something different. Now, Singapore is a very different case. They have quite limited land and very strong government control of what happens within the country. Uh, so this, you know, the Singaporean government and society is quite different from American, but there, you know, there are places to start. And I think where we start the conversation is, what do we want our cities to look like? What, you know, what's the socioeconomic demographic compositions that we want? And, you know, one thing that, you know, may seem obvious is it'd be great if, if school teachers lived in the same neighborhood as the kids they're teaching, because then they see them, you know, outside the classroom and it becomes sort of a better learning environment and they know the parents and so on. Uh, one place that one could start with this is for cities or school districts owning housing or maybe even taking an equity position in housing so that uh, that they help it make housing affordable for their teachers to live in that community. And you could see that in school bonds, you know, and and mm -hmm. and recently how past housing bonds, San Francisco mm -hmm. is one of them, too. And, and this, you know, this is this is not a new or radical idea. Churches have been doing this forever. Right. They, they own the rectory where uh, or the house where the pastor or priest uh, will live so that uh, so that that person can be in the community that they're ministering to. Mm -hmm. so it's not a novel concept, but it's one that could move along the same lines. And uh, you know, you you talked about uh, uh, you know one of the central issues of our day, which is uh, is reform of the justice system. Mm -hmm. And part of that seems to me uh, the reconnection of, uh, of public safety officers with the communities that they're in. Well, you know, maybe living in those communities helps that. And, and if those communities are, 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 you know, and if that can be subsidized, that can also begin to address some of the issues. It's not certainly not a solution, but this is sort of a long-winded way of saying, maybe this is the time to reimagine how uh, state and local governments deal with housing, given that the short answer to our question of the day is 
no, California housing is not going to be affordable in the near future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And going back to this idea about, um, you know, the, the, the call for, for reforming our criminal justice system or in a very, I guess, immediate term, you know, our policing system and the calls for defunding police departments, to me, that feels like a call for a redistribution of um, a city, you know, municipalities or a government or a county government's um, budget toward other things, such as housing for the community. Um, so it's, it's just interesting to me, like, this moment that we're in in 2020 is an inflection moment. It's an opportunity, I believe, to do the things that we thought that were just not doable or that the barriers just seem too, too big to, to jump through. Um, and, you know, again, going back to the sheltering in place, the fact that we did this in a collective sort of matter, um, America has this idea of, you know, the individualist, but I feel like in this moment, especially as we are sheltering in place together, or at least some of us have that privilege of sheltering in place while others may not, um, it feels like this is a moment to maybe think about a collective good. What can we do together um, to help solve uh, housing affordability in California. Um, so I don't know. Ultimately, I, I'm not sure I'm coming with it like a question per se, other than like a rallying cry to figure out like, well, let's be imaginative. Let's say what if. Let's say, you know, let's go back to that idea that, I don't know, like that we just didn't think was on the table and and I don't know, revisit that, do some consideration. And for, for housing, I just believe that this is California's inflection moment. This is the opportunity where we can decide that we won't be satisfied with what was before. I, I think you're right that there is an opportunity here. Uh, and uh, and it's, you know, it's an opportunity to reimagine our cities and, and how our society holistically functions together. And that really includes housing and, and, and shelter. Uh, but it is not guaranteed that we're going to do that. You know, a, a, another Bay Area journalist, uh, Connor Doherty, just published a book called Golden Gates. And, and what's interesting about that book is that he looks at uh, the various forces that have affected housing in California. And, you know, it's easy to say, well, that's just nimbyism and so on, but there actually are externalities. You know, a community is not just where you live, but it's characterized by everything you get from everyone who lives around you and the nature of that community. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, so there are externalities to just having kind of unfettered construction of new homes wherever kind of the money wants to take it. Mm -hmm. uh, that creates political forces that tend to be conservative in the sense, not in the red-blue sense, but in the sense sure. that this is my community, I like it, this is where I've lived a long time. And I in don't, the sense I, of risk. Yeah, I don't really want it to change. Mm -hmm. So it is certainly not guaranteed that as we go through kind of looking at these other serious issues that we're dealing with, uh, between social justice and inequality and healthcare, that housing is going to be wrapped into that in our thinking about uh, what California is going to look like in 2030 or 2050. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, 
I'm glad you said something about character because, you know, that often comes up when we talk about housing and neighborhoods is, is like the neighborhood character or the area's character. And I've always thought about character being um, exactly what you said, which is the people, right? The people who bring um, their culture and um, their creativity, uh, their friendliness, you know, um, that to me is is what brings character to a community. And so I'm, I'm st stepping back a little bit into the beginning of our conversation where we talked about, um, so if if the if you believe the jury is still out about the suburbs sort of seeing um, increased interest or mid-side cities, um, then, then to me, it seems like people will still need to be together to stimulate collaboration, creativity, productivity, to feed off of each other's character. Um, then there will be this continued demand for housing near these job centers that we think about, like San Francisco, per se. Um, so I just wondered that, that does this desire or thirst for um, what we have seen in the last few years where private capital sort of chases the construction of luxury housing or what some might call like class A housing, um, will that like sort of thirst still continue for the high end housing or might it become more of a thirst um, for housing? Like what, I guess ultimately what I'm saying is what will become of that high-end housing that is either in the pipeline or currently being constructed? Do you feel like, is there, is there still demand for that in our urban centers? So um, Professor Richard Florida, who is at, um, University of Toronto and NYU, his view on this is that a lot of that demand for luxury housing is consumption demand by people who like being in the city, but they don't need to be in the city for work. Uh, so these are, are wealthier individuals or households. And as uh, a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there is you know, more of a move of, of this demographic out to places that are um, maybe a little more comfortable for them in terms of, uh, of their health because they tend to be older. Uh, and, uh, and also uh, bars and restaurants are not as comfortable as they were pre-pandemic, right? And so he sees this as, a, as, as an opportunity for cities to to basically reset and, and that high-end luxury housing boom that we've seen uh, here in California, we've seen it in New York and in London that, uh, that maybe that is over with. And I think we're seeing some of, of that indeed occurring. Uh, hmm. you, get, you get kind of a, a less of it in Los Angeles because Los Angeles so is be a little bit more of a suburban city Mm -hmm. and, and so you have less density, but there's still, you know, maybe some of it, especially the high-end uh, apartments in, um, or condominiums in downtown. The other part of this uh, is the demand by uh, wealthy individuals who live elsewhere, who are in uh, China or in the Middle East or in Russia or, or, or the UK. Uh, to get to their homes in California means they have to fly on a long flight. Maybe it's a private jet, but if not, uh, you know, there is some reticence to take these long flights now, again, for health concerns. 
So maybe we see an abatement of that demand and that opens up an opportunity, not for affordable housing, but for more affordable housing than it was before because the high end profits for construction of large luxury condominiums and homes uh, abate somewhat. Mm, interesting. Uh, is there, do you think, a market in the future uh, during this recovery for turning like vacant retail space or vacant restaurant space, office space that hasn't recovered or is having a slower recovery into housing? I, I think there's a real opportunity for that. If one considers just one part of that, which is malls, malls mm -hmm. sit typically in dense areas because they needed the population to mm -hmm. uh, to, to come in and, and uh, visit and shop in, in the stores. And one of the problems that we have here in California is we've run out of land in the most attractive areas. If malls are underperforming, you have a large piece of land that is eligible for infill to be replaced by, by housing. So there's a real opportunity there. And in fact, there is a Senate bill, I, I'm not sure where it is. I know it's been voted out of committee and it came out of, of committee, I think with a unanimous vote. So Republicans and Democrats alike, which provides incentives for owners of vacant retail space to convert that to housing. So, so there is, you know, the, a real chance that this indeed will occur. Um, th thinking about um, the the real estate uh, market, you know, for where people are purchasing their homes, I feel like mortgage interest rates have sort of fueled that demand so far. Just, just the mortgage interest rates that have been sort of really, really darn low. Um, I've noticed even like the big bankers like Wells Fargo or Chase that have said like, we're having a hard time like getting back to people because we're seeing demand um, being fueled in by this, the, the low mortgage rate, um, which is obviously another form of, of housing subsidies that I feel like we don't talk enough about, <laughs> but maybe in the next question. Um, but anyway, this seems to be fueling this demand for home purchasing, this low mortgage interest rate trend. How long do you think that can last? Our view is that we're in a low interest rate environment for the foreseeable future. And I think the Fed, especially with the way in which this recovery is going to unfold, and let me come back to that momentarily, the, the Fed, with the way this recovery is going to unfold, it's going to be very hesitant to push interest rates up anytime soon. Now, a lot of that activity that we've seen thus far has been refinancing. But as the economy opens up and people can go out and, and look at homes and others are deciding maybe they'll move out of the city, uh, you'll start to see a lot more in the way of home sales that are also fueled by low interest rates that, you know, frankly, make homes more, more affordable. Uh, you know, the recovery, and we sort of talked about our forecast, but we mm -hmm. have not talked about an important part of it. Okay. And that is that we have an assumption, and everyone who has when any forecast that you hear has an assumption about what's going to happen with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And 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 the short answer is none of us know. Yes. So, so we have so we have to say, here's what we're going to assume. And by doing that, 
we can demonstrate the relationship between that pandemic and what happens with the economy. And, and that provides a guide because we could easily be wrong about our, our assumption, but a kind of a guide so that as you see the pandemic doing something different, you know how the economy is gonna move differently. Our assumption is that as we go through the summer, this summer, the pandemic abates. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that it's still around in 2021 and 2022, it is not having the kind of significant impact that it had in 2020. So we don't have a big second wave. We don't have a closing up of the economy again. Maybe we have a vaccine or maybe the pandemic just abates as they do sometimes. That's, that's the assumption that we have. Right. Uh, if, if in fact we're too optimistic, then we're too optimistic about the economy in 2021 and 2022 and the recovery will be even slower and interest rates will stay low for even longer. Uh -huh. Which leads me to think that if interest rates stay low, there's perhaps some sector, you know, some, some people who, who have the money saved up and can go off and chase, you know, um, a, a mortgage and a house. Um, but if our construction sector is constrained and we're not able to build immediately, then that would affect prices. Meaning like in order to slow that demand in mortgage interest with, this, with a slow run of supply, that what that does is push housing prices up. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it, it, right, and, and that's an interesting question. So we've been constrained, at least in the last few years, by a shortage of construction workers. Yes. What we're seeing now, indeed in the last month, we saw hiring in construction. And, and, what, and what we're seeing now is, is that there exists a pool of potential construction workers to be hired. Mm -hmm. So we can in fact see construction uh, grow and be one of the strong growth areas oh, in, interesting. in California going forward. Now, construction is not unskilled work. No, so no. <laughs> there, is, yeah. there is a policy issue here, which is that we have a lot of low-income folks who have lost their livelihoods in leisure and hospitality and retail and in other services, whose jobs, if they come back at all, are not going to come back for years, mm. but who could receive training to move into the construction trades and, and provide that additional pool of labor so that that sector can grow and, and we can have more housing than we would otherwise anticipate. And uh, our forecast is that housing is going to come back in the next two years to a, a little bit above where it was going into the recession, but not dramatically so, maybe about 10,000 units a year. Mm. And if you remember the 3.2 million number, 10,000 is pretty small. Yeah. That could be, that could be uh, way low if policy helps folks get into the construction trades and as well as some of the re other regulatory uh, aspects of building that you know might be eased. Mm -hmm. I, I know there's a lot of discussion about this in Sacramento, but this is you know certainly an area that can 
uh, raise lower income Californians into middle income and can also uh, help spur a more rapid recovery in the state. Mm. Uh, interesting. I feel like two years ago, I interviewed somebody in the trade, in the construction trade. Um, I feel like we were, I'm pretty sure my microphone was off or something. It was just kind of casual conversation at one point. And the man told me, um, you know what I would really like to say, Erica, is um, an, uh, like a, a worker, a worker program, much like we do with um, farming for construction. Could we like, could we do an immigration program um, that that is mirrored after or at least built in in the sense of, of the way we have migrant workers who come sometimes for, for farming, but do that for housing construction. And I was like, well, let me put that in my what if list. So we used to unofficially have that. <laughs> and uh, and what, you know, what happened in, uh, actually the, the, the housing market in California turned down before the 2008, 2009 recession. It turned down in the middle of 2006. And those construction workers, uh, who we would call undocumented immigrants, they moved out of state and, and they went to build homes uh, in Houston and in New Orleans, still New Orleans still rebuilding after Katrina. And, uh, and then with the immigration policies of the current administration, that workforce is not here. But we do have an opportunity to have a jobs program that would train unemployed Californians who are coming out of some of these service industries to enter into construction. And that would increase the supply of housing. So will it make California affordable? No, but will it make it less unaffordable? Yes. Hmm. I want to squeeze in another question about um, rents, if you don't mind, um, as we turn to, to wrapping up our conversation here. Um, so I, I think what I remembered is um, you're saying rents right now seem to be a little bit under pressure. Um, the stimulus package, or at least the help, the, 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 the subsidies that some people have received have helped keep people in their homes. Also regulation has helped. The fact that at least in California, or at least in the Bay Area, actually in California, judicially, um, you know, eviction court is basically closed um, except for emergency cases. So some of this seems to be um, helping some folks, right? Um, but as we think about COVID continuing um, or put the potential for it to continue until we find a vaccine, uh, is there sort of um, economic support plus, I think, you know, you don't have to answer this part, but plus the political will to help people maintain their rent during this pandemic? So, I, you know, I only know what I read that politicians say. Right, right. Well, that but, uh, but the indication that I get is not this year. Hmm. We, we do have, like in California, Assemblyman David Chu's uh, bill, which is, um, I forget the name, AB 1436, that if it, if it passed, it would prevent landlords from evicting tenants during the current like state of emergency. Um, or like 90 days after if they've missed rent payments. Um, and then there's a separate proposal by assembly member Phil Ting, AB, oh gosh, these numbers all run together to me sometimes. Um, 
828, I think, and it would freeze evictions and foreclosures during the pandemic for 15 days. Anyway, all, all I'm trying to say is um, there seems to be legislative movement around it. What I'm wondering is, um, and then there's there's Senate, Senate Bill 1410, which is um, Adkins' bill about tax credits, giving tax credits to landlords um, that would equal the value of their missed rental payments that landlords could get like cash now by selling them into an offset market um, or use them, you know, obviously later, and that tenants would be able to be, would be on the hook for paying the state back for any kind of missed rent, you know, through this course. I guess what I'm ultimately wondering is like, I, I don't understand the economics part of that and, and whether it plays into um, the ability to get some of that legislation through. So I think this is, you know, these are things for the short term, right? That, it, you know, if you have a, a crisis for a few months, everyone feels a collective need to do their part and, and, and pay some sacrifice. Right. The, the, it's not long-term. And, and you began your question with, what happens if we have a long-term pandemic that lasts two or three years, as, for example, the, the influenza pandemic of 1918-1919? Uh, if you have these kinds of measures that go for several years, the impact on landlords is, is, well, the impact on housing is going to be twofold. One is that landlords will be selling their buildings at a discount, so they'll be taking a capital loss. The second is this makes it much riskier to build, certainly to build rental housing, uh, but also maybe to build housing in general. And, uh, and so you'll have less housing coming from the private sector and the idea that we're going to have construction uh, be one of the strong sectors that lead us out of this recession, that just kind of go, goes by the boards. And, uh, and that was one of the ways to, in fact, help the growing inequality in California by providing the pathway to these uh, better paying jobs. So a short term uh, assistance in the midst of a crisis, it works. In the long term, the disincentives are really fairly powerful. And I think there's a lot of empirical evidence that would suggest that. Hmm. Interesting thing to think of. Um, one last question before we wrap um, uh, a, a short, hopefully, one. Um, is there an indicator? It's kind of my favorite thing to ask lots of housing experts um, and economists. Um, is there an indicator that you sort of, uh, that I even should keep my eye out to see? Um, to keep my eye out for housing recovery, what piece of indicator, what marker are you looking to watch and see how it performs and changes that might give you an indication that housing um, affordability may be um, turning in, a, in the right direction? We have several price indices, and uh, they are the FHFA's Home Price Index, which is uh, a quarterly the California Association of Realtors publishes a median price in California and by regions in California, and, and the Case-Shiller Home Price Index in three cities in California. None of those show that, that this recession has had much of an impact at all on affordability and, and easing the lack of affordability. And the other index that I would keep my eye on is uh, 
is new permits. And building permits. Building permits for houses, yes. And the census publishes this once a month. That'll tell you if builders looking at the housing market thinks that think that the housing market is going to improve uh, in such a way that it's profitable to build new homes. At UCLA, at the Anderson Forecast, we do a twice monthly survey of six cities in California on multifamily, multifamily housing uh, uh, building sentiment looking out three years. Mm -hmm. And so far, I mean, the last one we took, builders were pessimistic, but they're still building. And, and so that's something to, you know, kind of look at when they're pessimistic and stop building, then you know that the market is, is declining. Uh, but thus far, we really don't see the kind of implosion in the housing market that we saw in, in the 2008 recession or that we typically see in recessions. Very interesting. Um, we should leave it there because I think we're a little over time. Um, we'll have to close there and, and have a conversation, con you know, continue online. Um, thank you everybody out there for listening and for tuning in. Um, this talk will be on Zucalo's website and uh, on the podcast tomorrow. Jerry, thank you so much for having um, this conversation with me and enlightening all of us. I hope we will continue this conversation online, reach out uh, social or on the website. Thank you very much for joining us. Have a good day.